2 Samuel chapter 9. I'll begin reading in verse 1, and we will go through verse 13. I, hear, I still hear pages flipping. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness to God, or kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makur, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Makur, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that I should show that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your ser servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table." Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Good morning to you. I am the college director, as Bill had mentioned, so my temptation is going to be to face this side of the room the whole time and just speak this way. But my goal will be to actually face this side as well at times to, uh, to not be so unbalanced. As you know, Bill has been speaking through the book of Hebrews, which I will gladly leave to Bill. And instead, I will pre be preaching on David and Mephibosheth. Why this passage? Some of you may be wondering. The short answer is, I love this story. It is a beautiful picture of grace. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. It's an intriguing passage. It's a tremendous story of restoration. In this passage, we find one who desperately needs restoration. And we find only one who can restore. But to get started, we have to figure out what's going on here in this passage. The books of First and Second Samuel deal with the accounts of the kings. And here we have King David is now on the throne of Israel. God had taken the kingdom out of the hands of Saul and had handed the kingdom over to David. Now, when a new king would assume the throne, the plan was to establish a dynasty. 
So therefore, the sons of the kings would become kings after their father would die, after their father would die, or the king would die. Therefore, the goal was to, for the new king to kill off the old king and all the sons of that king, so that he could ensure that there would be no revolt. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, who was the son of Saul. So if you followed that, Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson. Now we must realize the tension here. The former king, Saul, hated David because David was basically a threat to the throne. But on the other, so you have a, the father who hates David, and yet the son, Jonathan, loved David. And in fact, in 1 Samuel 18, it speaks of the reality that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. They loved each other like they were brothers. And in fact, it was Jonathan who kept David from getting killed on a number of occasions at the hands of his father, Saul. And we know that in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, that Saul and his three sons, Jonathan being one of them, dies on the battlefield fighting against the Philistines. So Saul's family is virtually wiped out. David assumes the throne, and he has established himself. And at this point, with the kingdom firmly in hand, he seeks to show favor to the house of Saul if there's anyone left. So he asks Ziba in verse 1, Anyone left that I may show the kindness of God? This is quite an unbelievable gesture. After all, we must remember that Saul on numerous occasions tried to kill David. He chased him into the wilderness trying to kill him. He took spears on a couple of occasions. We see that in 1 Samuel 18 and 19. Chucked spears at David trying to pin him against a wall. He chased him into caves. And now we find David, who has been on the run from Saul, now is king wanting to show kindness to Saul's house. What do we make of this? What's going on here? We shall find out. David calls for Ziba. Ziba is the servant of the house of Saul. And David asked in verse 3, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? Ziba says, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And here we begin to see Mephibosheth's desperate condition. 2 Samuel 4.4, if you want to turn there quickly, 2 Samuel 4.4 tells the story of how Mephibosheth came to be crippled. Second Samuel 4.4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So here we, the news comes about the battle with the Philistines. Jonathan and Saul die in battle. And so here Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth is an heir to the throne. So the nurse picks him up and flees for his safety. We have to note something very specific and very significant about this portion. That it was... Mephibosheth's nurse who dropped him. It was not his mother. And why is this significant? Because today is Mother's Day. That is why this is significant. See, if it, if it was his mother... I actually got an amen on that. If it was his mother, he would have been safe, and not just safe, he would have been nurtured, 
He would have been well-fed, his nose would have been clean, his hair combed, wear matching clothes, all that good stuff. Mothers are wonderful. I will leave it there. But indeed, the nurse dropped him, and he was crippled. Now, there's an interesting point of exchange between David and Ziba. David wanted to show kindness to anyone left in the house, and yet Ziba was quick to point out, yes, there is, Jonathan, oh, but he's crippled. In other words, Ziba is saying to David, really, Mephibosheth is going to be no threat to your throne. But if it is indeed a kind intention, if it really is the kindness of God you want to show Mephibosheth, he's not worthy. See, in this time period, disabilities would not have been looked on in favor at all. So Ziba's helping David out and saying, you know, he's not going to look very good in your court. He doesn't quite fit in. Oh, but it gets worse. Mephibosheth's very name, translated, would mean a shameful thing. Think about that. The very identity that he holds, his name, is a shameful thing. We can assume that this was the name given to him, especially after his accident. Oh, but it gets worse. David asked, where is he? David didn't even know about him. And the reality is, since we know from this passage that Mephibosheth had a son who was five, Mephibosheth has been hiding for at least 20 years, and the king didn't even know about him because he's been a fugitive. He's been hiding out. Why a fugitive? Why hiding out? Because Mephibosheth comes from a family that is the sworn enemy of David. And it gets worse. Not only is he a fugitive, he's at low debar. If you translate that, it would mean no pasture. He's in a desolate place. So do you get a feel from Mephibosheth of what of the situation he's in? Here he is crippled, shameful, he's a fugitive in a desolate place. Now when we come across a story like this in the Bible, it is good to take an inventory of the characters and to ask the question, which character am I? Which character do you identify with? Here we see two main characters. We see David the king and Mephibosheth the fugitive. Who are you? Maybe it's more appropriate to ask the question, who were you? The reality, what scripture speaks to, is that all of us were born into the desperate condition of Mephibosheth. We were born crippled, fugitives, shameful, and in the domain of darkness. Just as Mephibosheth was crippled due to the fall of another, namely his nurse, so also we were spiritually crippled due to a fall of another, namely Adam. We find that in Genesis 3. And because of the, fan, or because of the fall, man is unable to walk acceptably before God. Scripture speaks of that. Romans 8.8, 8, for instance, says that those who are in the flesh, in other words, those who do not have the Spirit of God, those who are not in Christ, Romans 8.8 8 says they cannot please God. As one commentator put it, the faculties of man's soul have become spiritually crippled as a result of the fall. But not only that, we were born shameful as well. In this sense, that Isaiah 64.6 speaks of us being unclean and that even our most righteous acts are as filthy garments to the Lord. So even on our best day, 
still merits hell in and of ourselves. Not only that, but we were fugitives. We were hiding out. We were in, in rebellion against the king of all creation. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Romans 3 picks this back up and says, There's no one who pursues God, not even one. Romans 5, 8 goes on to say that we're actually enemies of God, fugitives. And we were born under a domain of darkness. According to Colossians 1, 3, there are two domains. There is the domain of darkness in which Satan reigns. And there's also the kingdom of the beloved son in which Jesus reigns. And those who have not embraced Christ are in the domain of darkness. Obviously, this is the bad news. Some of you may be saying, Chad, lighten up. Let's get some good news. Well, it's coming. But... In order to truly understand the good news, we have to understand the desperate condition that we came from. We can't taste the beauty of the gospel until we have, until we have grasped the desperate condition that all of us were born into because of sin. If you are not in Christ this morning, do you understand the condition that you are in? What hope do you have? What hope, do, what hope does Mephibosheth have? What hope does any of us have? Our only hope is that the king might be merciful. In this story, we have the tension building. Verse 5, we know that David brought Mephibosheth from his domain of darkness, from his hideout, to the kingdom. And in verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Mephibosheth is on his face before the king. And the king says to him, Shameful thing. We can't miss that. That's actually his name. Shameful thing. And Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth says, Behold, your servant. And then David says to him, pause right there. Let's think about this. What is running through David's mind at this very moment? What do you think he's thinking about? He's on his face before the king, the most powerful man in the land. His grandfather, Saul, had tried to kill David on numerous occasions. And now Mephibosheth was a fugitive, fugitive hiding out for 20 years. He's been captured. He is brought before the king. It's safe to assume that on Mephibosheth's left and right would be soldiers carrying swords and spears. If you think about the spears, they might have even resembled some of the same spears that Saul chucked at David at least two occasions trying to kill him. Surely Mephibosheth thought that he was as good as dead and even makes the statement referring to himself as a dead dog. But we know something that Mephibosheth didn't know. We know something Mephibosheth couldn't have known. And it was this, that before Mephibosheth was even born, a covenant had been established that would result in grace being extended to him and his family. If you would, please turn to 1 Samuel 20. We're going to look a little bit more in depth at the covenant that was established. 
1 Samuel chapter 20. In this passage, Jonathan is appealing to David that when he becomes king, to please extend mercy and grace to Jonathan and his family. Verse 14 is where we'll pick this up. Jonathan says, if I am still alive, in other words, Jonathan's saying, if we make it through this thing and my dad hasn't killed me, he goes on to say, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off, cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And skipping down to verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, verse 42, go in peace. Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. See, this wasn't just about friendship. This is much more powerful than that. This was about a covenant that was established between two people. It was about covenant faithfulness. David made a covenant that he would show kindness. And that very word, kindness could be translated the old testament word for grace that david obligated himself to show grace to jonathan and to his family and i love the way the the word says that he was to demonstrate the steadfast love of the lord to mephibosheth and his family we must understand that there's nothing in and of mephibosheth to draw the king's favor to him but instead there was something outside of mephibosheth it was the bond of love and friendship with Jonathan. As Calvin, a noted theologian, put it, he loved this poor creature for the love of his father Jonathan. Now, if a covenant between two people can be upheld, how much more faithful will God be with the covenant that he has established with his children? And God has established a covenant with his people that extends to us. We see this in Exodus 6-7. Don't worry about turning there. Um, this is known as the covenant formula, and it is this. It is God saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And we see the same theme sprinkled throughout the Bible. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And even right here, if I could translate this loosely or paraphrase it, it is, I will be your king, and you shall always eat at my table. How is it possible? How is it possible that we have entered into this covenant of grace? Just as David and Jonathan entered into a covenant before Mephibosheth was even born, promising to extend mercy to all who belong to his house, so also God the Father and Jesus entered into a covenant before we were even born. As Ephesians talks about, before the creation of the world, they entered into a covenant promising to extend mercy and steadfast love to all who are of the house of Jesus. It's not by our faithfulness. It's not by our righteousness. It is by the faithfulness and righteousness of Christ. But let's turn back to our story and look at the blessings that flow out of 
David's covenantal faithfulness to Jonathan. Now, if we remember, picking back up in the story, Mephibosheth is laying in front of the king. His fate is in the hands of the king, and he is waiting for the axe to fall. Verse 7 says, And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And here we must contrast the desperate condition with Mephibosheth with the unconditional kindness of David. Notice, it's the, king's, it's the king that sets the terms. There's no bartering, only submission on the will of the fugitive. We notice from verse 5 that it was the king who initiated. The fugitive was on the run. He made no attempt to appease, to appease the king whatsoever, but it was the king that went and brought him back to the kingdom. We see in verse 7 that David says, Do not fear. There is now no condemnation from Mephibosheth. He has been pardoned of all wrongdoing and accepted back into the kingdom because of the love of Jonathan. And it gets better. David also restores all the land, all the inheritance that Saul had now goes back to Mephibosheth, which we can understand from verses 9 through 11 was probably pretty sizable since Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants and they all worked for Mephibosheth as his servants. And it gets better. David says that Mephibosheth is to eat always at his table. So in a true sense, David adopts Mephibosheth as his very own son. And it still gets better. We know from verse 12 that Mephibosheth had a son named Micah. And so what we understand is that this covenantal kindness extends not just to David, but to his son, to his family as well. In verse 8, what is Mephibosheth's response? It is this. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth got it. It's the right response to grace. He knew he was a dead man, and yet he, grace was lavished upon him. Now, earlier we talked about the various characters, that there was the character of the king and also of the fugitive. Now, I want to turn our attention to the king and to, and to talk about the kindness of the king. The way in which David showed kindness to the family of his archenemy foreshadows how God would extend grace to sinners. Just as David had set the terms, our king set the terms. Which, by the way, this makes us nervous. We're really afraid of allowing a king to reign over our lives at times. Because what would that mean for the way that we spend our money? What would it mean for the way we do relationships? What would it mean for the way we run our business? The way we run all of our affairs? What does that mean for the way that we would date and party? What does all this mean? We so often want to rule our own lives. We are often very suspicious of God. We are suspicious that the king does not have our best interest in mind. But what we have to do with that suspicion is take it to places like this, the scriptures, where we see an unbelievable count of grace 
an unbelievable account of mercy, of David showing kindness to someone who didn't deserve it and recognize that that is us. That God has dealt graciously with us and has our best interest in mind. We see from this passage that the king is the one who initiated. And in 1 John 4.10, the verse says that this is love, not that we first loved God, but that he loved us. It's the king who initiated with us. And the beauty of it is grace isn't picky. Grace doesn't look for what you can bring to the table. Grace is for sinners, for addicts, for the lonely, for outcasts, for weary, for the hopeless. Grace is one-sided. We don't deserve it, we can't earn it, and we certainly cannot repay it. It's the king who initiates grace. But it doesn't stop there. The king also took away our shame and nailed it to the cross. We are no longer Mephibosheth. We are no longer shameful. Instead, we are now a new creation. We are God's beloved. God set his love on us, knows you by name. I mean, catch this. The Lord knows you by name and dearly loves you because of his covenantal faithfulness. We have also been justified, the term that's used in the New Testament at times, meaning that we have been declared righteous. But it doesn't just stop there. We also have been accepted by, by God as if we are Christ himself. Since the Second Corinthians 5.21, passage known as the great transfer, that our sins are transferred to Christ. But it's, that doesn't, it's not where justification ends, but that Christ's righteousness was transferred to us so that when God looks at us, he can declare us righteous as his very own son. So there's no room for fear. In fact, just as King David said, fear not, so God says to us, fear not. It's interesting that when David wanted to show kindness, Ziba was quick to point out the... Uh, the shame of Mephibosheth, his crippled legs. And in the same way, Satan, the father of lies and the accuser of the brethren, loves to point and target our shame. He loves to make us feel worthless. Satan loves to remind us of our sins from the past and also of our sins from the present. But Satan also likes to reason with us that we will still continue to sin in the future. So why not just lose heart? Why not just give up? But what we have to remember is to look to the cross. It is the cross that reminds us that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for because of the faithfulness of Christ. And we are free to live lives pleasing to the king. But it still gets better. Our king also restores the inheritance that Adam lost for us in the fall. We are entitled to a better paradise than that which Adam even experienced. Think about it. From the domain of darkness to everlasting paradise. It's a great thing that the king offers us. And our king also takes us into communion with himself and seats us at his table as his adopted children. This is one in particular that even this semester I have been in awe of. And that is, as 
for uh, one of the college Sunday school classes, we've been looking at the reality of the gospel, the grace of God in our life. And in particular, we focused on a couple of things, doctrine of justification and the doctrine of adoption. And if this has helped me to think of it in this terms, hopefully this will be helpful to you. With justification, we are declared righteous in terms of the law by a judge. Now that's beautiful, but yet there's still part of it that is slightly impersonal. It's not very relational. You can, the, the picture you get is of a courtroom. It's a legal term, but justification doesn't stand alone because adoption comes along, and together they make a beautiful picture. And that is adoption is that we are declared not righteous, but children of the living God in terms of not the law, but in terms of love. And it's by not a judge, but by a father. The picture I get is not of a courtroom. It's more of a living room. Very loving, loving doctrine. J.I. Packer made this, said this statement uh, in a book that he wrote that I think is just, uh, I just love this quote. He says, if any... If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. This covenant love, finally, is not just for us. It's for our children as well. So the blessings continue. So what is Mephibosheth's response to this? We'll have to look at how the story ends. In verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. What can Mephibosheth do? What can he bring to the table? Not a thing. The only response that Mephibosheth can actually make is to trust and to eat. He's no longer a fugitive. He has to trust that he's not a fugitive, but that he is a son of the king. And he is to submit himself to the king. Our response as well is to trust the king and to submit our lives to the king. Now, of course, I mentioned earlier that we're suspicious of God, so maybe this makes us nervous. But realize, Mephibosheth was suspicious as well. He was nervous until he tasted the gourmet food. That took his suspicions away. The other thing Mephibosheth can do is eat is to come before the Lord, to come before his king daily and eat and enjoy the favor that has been lavished on him. But it's tempting to think, oh, isn't this a bit excessive? Wouldn't, it have just, wouldn't the story have been nice if he just goes, he eats one meal, and then he goes off? And the American version of the story would be that Mephibosheth now returns back to his land He pulls himself up by his bootstraps and really makes something great of himself. We are tempted, like the American way, to try to earn God's favor, to try to prove that we are worthy of the grace that we have been shown. But this passage tells us, and Scripture tells us, no, we are Mephibosheth, desperately in need of God's grace. And that God's grace is is excessive. In this passage, it is excessive, and that is the grace that is offered to us. And the passage ends. This detail we cannot miss. The last statement is, 
Now he was lame in both his feet. The author's making a point here. He's lame in both feet, not just one. He is utterly helpless. But don't miss the point because it's as if the author is winking at us. He's saying, don't feel sorry for Mephibosheth. His crippled feet were a constant reminder of God's grace to him. Grace covers shame. Under the king's table, the crippled feet of Mephibosheth were hid from sight. And in Christ, all of our deformities are hid. Now, Paul Paul Harvey is famous for his line, and now the rest of the story. And like any good drama, this story here has a twist that we must look at quickly. So if you could turn to 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel 16, just a few chapters over. 2 Samuel 16. The context is that David has had to flee the kingdom because Absalom, his, his own son, has conspired against him to take the throne. 2 Samuel 16, verse 1 says this, When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, and the master's son that is speaking of Mephibosheth. Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. This, the reading of this would make you think that this just ruined my sermon. He was shown such grace, such favor. Why did he forsake his king? I could go on to talk about how oftentimes with the grace that God shows us, we can be quick to reject God. We can be quick to reject that grace and pursue our own thing. But I won't go on to talk about that because like any other good drama, this has a second twist to it which means we need to turn a few more chapters over to 2 Samuel 19. 2 Samuel 19, the context now is that Absalom is now dead, so the king is back in David's hands, rightfully. In verse 24, we'll pick this story up. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, Saddle a donkey for me, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame." He had slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like an angel of God. Do, therefore, what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, 
Why speak about any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall, decide, shall d- divide the land. Let me pause here and just mention that this is a test that David is giving. David is trying to figure out Mephibosheth's heart. Does Mephibosheth want the land or does he want David? Let's pick it back up. Mephibosheth's response to David's, to David's uh, decision to divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home in safety. Mephibosheth was grieving the king's loss. It wasn't the land that he wanted. It was the presence of the king that had been away. It's a beautiful ending to this story. He longed for the presence of the king. To close with the story, about a few months ago, um, Peyton, our six-year-old, confided something in confided with Tiffany about something that he was pretty upset about. And so I'm at work. I get a phone call. Tiffany says, uh, Peyton was just talking to me, and I've told him that when you get home from work, why don't you guys talk about it? She said, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Just know that he is uh, he's pretty upset about this. I said, oh, boy. Okay. So I get home from work, and Peyton and I go to have a conversation. I say, Peyton, Mommy said there's something that you told her that you're pretty upset about. You want to talk about it? And he sighs. And his lip starts to quiver. He says, Daddy? I said, yeah. He says, kind of hesitates. He says, well, you know how we're supposed to love Jesus more than anything else? And I said, yeah, kind of bracing myself. And he sighs again, and then he says, well, I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time loving Jesus more than Batman. (laughs) What do you say to that? I said... I know, Peyton. I at times have a hard time struggling to love things more than Jesus as well. And I share that just to make the point that this passage, what it tells us is look at the king. Look at the favor that we have been shown. The king who initiated with us has taken our shame away, has restored everything that was lost in Adam for us, has justified us, has adopted us, And all this wrapped up in covenant love. And the more we understand that king, the more we eat at his table, the more we grow to know the king and love the king, the less we will desire the toys of the world. Please pray with me. Jesus, we praise you as our exalted king. Thank you that you are a conquering king, that that you have conquered sin, you conquered death, and you rose from the grave, proving that you are truly the one king over the universe. And thank you that in you we can have no fear. Thank you, Jesus, that you lived a perfect life for us and died on the cross so that we could have everlasting paradise with you. And I pray specifically this morning, Lord, if there are some in here who are in hiding, would you... Would you show your great favor on them? Would they be able to see how good and how glorious you are and that they would run to you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.